Welcome to the Roto World Football Podcast. I am apparently not Josh Norris. I am Matt Straub, joined by Pat Doherty, John Daigle, and Danny Carter. The regular season is over. And before we turn our attention to previewing the playoffs today, we have some lessons learned, fantasy lessons learned from the regular season. Guys, I want to start by saying I noticed during your last show with Josh that you were all enjoying a drink. I thought it seemed like fun, so I joined in. I had a couple with you. I passed out. And I came to in this chair. So this is jarring. I don't know what's going on, but here we are. Well, yeah, that was last week. And at our age, if you have two or three drinks, I think you told me what it was, you're going to be hung over for about five or six days. So uh, yeah, yeah. It makes sense that you're just now coming to. On New sign. Year's, on New Year's, I think I looked up and it was like eight o'clock. It's like, I'm not making it. There's no, <laughs> there's no way I'm reaching midnight. Um, also a new era, by the way, because not only new host, of course, welcome Matt, but Josh, his weakness was that he kept Denny and I apart literally all season long. So this is the first time I'm recording with Denny as well, even going back to the offseason. So uh, it's going to That's be interesting. Right. But also I will say I'm excited. The new offseason content schedule, of course, two episodes per week. We'll still be back with review shows on Monday and then preview shows on Thursday. And then we get into the two per week about uh, offseason fantasy drafts and everything. But yeah, here we are. It feels like a weight has been lifted off our shoulders, I think, as we were all writing. I don't want to speak for everyone, but as we were all writing end of end of year game blurbs last night uh it just felt like those were the toughest ever because they were so often players would miss a couple of games covid list injury and then like these four string guys we never usually have to write about we had to write about because they had no choice but to make an impact at some point so really the toughest year any of us across the entire industry have ever dealt with having said that it's still working in fantasy i don't want to complain but <laughs> it was rough hey, Daigle, i i listen i personally I enjoy writing about Drew Sample season. So uh, <laughs> that was, you know, that was my pleasure. Um, but you're right. It was, it was a difficult season. I, I figure if I could get through this season as my first season, I could get through any season. I am, I am uh, officially Bane from Batman. You know, I was born in, in the fire or in the darkness or whatever, wherever Bane was born. That's where there was a, there's a lot of them, but I think my favorite Denny rookie moment behind the scenes <laughs> that no one sees is the time you came into Slack and Pat wasn't yelling, but Pat was like emphasizing in week one, Denny, you have to blurb about LaShawn McCoy. Or he asked you, Diddy, have you blurred about LaShawn McCoy? You said, no, like a question mark. Like <laughs> why would I blurb about LaShawn McCoy? It's like, yeah, that's what people we do. Are, that's right. He just That's even right. Denny didn't realize how sick people are and that they would just they read about anybody. So you gotta get well, like yeah, a, yeah. by the way, if you guys like, ask me anything about Farrell Brown, because I did a game and season ending recap on Farrell Brown last night. So wow, you would all live. Anything you want to know. I'm just amazed yeah, this I'm, is the first time that Daigle and Denny have seen each other's faces, and here we are. It seems like it's going pretty well so far. Matt, do you yeah. have children? We got to see where you fit in with Josh. Like, do you love wine? Do you have children? Are you bad at dating? Like, which of those categories are you, do you fit I'm, I'm in? in the children, beer, do not live near a train track category. Literally the right. complete opposite of Josh. It's like when a team so. fires an offensive coach, you hire a defensive-minded coach. That's what we've done with Stroud. Um, yeah, but yeah. We did terrible, but, by the way, in our pre-podcast pledge. We all pledged to just ignore Matt and not respond to anything he said out of a form of protest. 
and ice them out, and we did really bad on that. That's podcast off to a bad start. We're too soft. <laughs> All right, today we are talking fantasy lessons learned from the 2020 season. We've each brought, I'd say, one and a half, one to two. Daigle, you want to kick things off here for us? Yeah, so this is the topic just because I think I learned a lot of lessons for the 2020 season, and I don't expect to be as wild next year. I would hope that with the vaccine and a few other items, um, a few extra protocols added, now that we got through this thing 17 weeks, that we're more ready for it, the, the league I'm talking about. But I will say one of the key factors I took away was practically the death of the late round quarterback at least for the next few upcoming years because whereas we used to preach streaming quarterbacks just grabbing off the waiver wire the fact is unless you got a Jalen Hurts at the end of the season unless you jumped in on Justin Herbert let's say in week two after the Chargers training staff made sure he started the rest of the season <laughs> then you pretty much missed out honestly, because these statues, these guys that are even throwing for 300 yards and one or two touchdowns, your Roethlisberger's, your Kirk Cousins, as good as they played, even Tom Brady at times. Like, I understand Tom Brady into the season on a torrential tear, and maybe that's because they finally had a bye week. He finally got the rest towards the end of the year. But either way, like, those guys were so inconsistent throughout the year. Maybe someone has the in-depth season-long numbers. We're recording early on a Monday here. But not only that, I will say the next class coming up, again, provides more rushing juice. So we're only going to get further away from this. Will the inflation eventually catch up in like three or four years? Maybe we go back to streaming quarterbacks because everyone's prioritizing quarterbacks too much? Sure, that's how it usually happens in fantasy. But look at uh, Trey Lance, for instance, coming out. Uh, average 10.5 carries per game in his final year. Trevor Lawrence averaged 6.5 and, and scored 18 rushing touchdowns. Justin Fields averaged 7.5. Zach Wilson averaged 7. And all these guys, remember, are expected to go in the first round at the latest, the second round. And then, of course, um, even Ian Book, who's played at Notre Dame for nine years, averaged nine carries in his last two seasons. So again, we're not getting closer to getting back to streaming quarterbacks. Those guys are moving so far away from us, even so much that Cam Newton, who scores 12 rushing touchdowns, can't crack the top 12. He was the QB 17 in fantasy points per game this year because he didn't provide anything with his arm. And even a guy like Jalen Hurts you see last night can do both. And now that we're just getting further away from it, I think it's so important to prioritize at least a mid-round quarterback with rushing juice. You mean, John, that's like the nail on the head, a point you made over and over this season. If you're not rushing for like at least like 40 or 50 yards per game, like you're going to get left behind at fantasy quarterback. And speaking to Cam, I mean, a guy who almost essentially did not throw did finish as the QB 17 by total points, which like I said, didn't end up a good late round QB pick, but even like that horrible season was still almost a QB one because he's running. And you look at the top 10 and his total points, Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Brady, Lamar, Tannehill, so on and so on. Basically like the lesson there is if you're not Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes, like you're not like one of the greatest passers of your generation. You need to have some rushing juice uh, to, for fantasy dividends now. And the late round QB just murdered me this year and season long because I'm like, oh, Carson Wentz. For some reason, I bought into that for like the ninth time. Uh, Carson Wentz can be a great late round QB pick this year. More weapons. Uh, we were all excited about Matthew Stafford. So yeah, I was passing on all these guys. Like I'll mix and match with like Carson Wentz and Matthew Stafford and uh, they do not run. Um, they are both bad, bad people, really. Just bad, bad people. Um, and uh, no, I especially like Matthew Stafford. But 
yeah, I got murdered by late round QB and maybe we'll counter adjust as the offseason goes on. Okay, late round QB still exists, but you, you definitely we can't just like now with like the wave of our hand like dismiss the concept of like at least mid-round QB. It it does need to be reevaluated. Right. Well, I, I want to say John talked about the death of late round QB. JJ Zacharyson was a good friend of mine and a colleague. And so rest in peace, JJ. He but was, actually he he even retired, actually. He didn't die, he just retired. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but he, but even even JJ has has acknowledged this and said, you know, we we're in a, a new era of fantasy quarterback, and we have to remember that you know late round quarterback worked in one way in 2019, and that was if you drafted Lamar Jackson in the 10th round or 12th round, and that was it. That was the list of of really successful late round quarterbacks, and it was because, as you all are saying. Lamar Jackson brings that that rushing upside, tremendous, obviously in his case, tremendous rushing upside that probably can't be matched by anybody else in the league or or coming into the league. My only uh, hope, or I, I guess the o- the only way that late round quarterback can actually be successful in like a really viable strategy next season is if one of these uh, guys who's going to rush, you know, eight, 10, 12 times in a game can be had in the late rounds. And that's it. That's the only. That's the only way. Now, the the perception and the way that fantasy players uh, understand the quarterback position has shifted dramatically over the past five years. You know, you have even the elite guys going in the in the second, third, fourth round. You would have never seen that five years ago. Maybe maybe seven years ago. Uh, so that sort of change happens slowly, but it's really caught up to us uh, over that time frame. You know, yeah, it's not long before, like you were talking about the top 10, it's not long before you end up in Kirk Cousins, Matt Ryan territory. And Daigle, how dare you mention statuesque quarterbacks and not mention Matt Ryan? Who? <laughs> so Matt Ryan this year, he's I mean, he's a different case. He lived and died with Julio Jones. Of course, he had a couple games sprinkled at the end where it didn't tend to matter due to scheduling. But yeah, Ryan pretty much went on the, the legs of Julio. But Julio, what, is 33 next year, I believe? It's not like he's getting any younger. So perhaps, and Ryan, who knows? Like I would imagine he's there with Atlanta. But they, I mean, with a top six pick, they're also looking at one of these guys where um, if they draft him, perhaps he starts mid-year or uh, the next year once they can trade Ryan. Who knows? Yeah, I want to ask you guys, does this phenomenon that we're talking about make you more inclined, less inclined, or not move the needle at all in terms of playing in a super flex or two-quarterback league? I'm always more inclined. Anything that deepens the player pool. The problem is quarterbacks are such a scarce resource that 10 teams is really like what you almost need to have a truly fun two QB or super flex. It can, it's possible 12. And, but then that puts places like such a premium on quarterbacks and it gets kind of out of whack. The, the only problem you have with super flex is that once you get beyond 12 teams, it becomes almost not doable or like not fun. Cause you have to like mortgage your entire season to you like, oh, I got to spend a hundred fab on Andy Dalton. So it kind of like ruins the league, but yeah, I'm always in favor of something because quarterback is the most important position of football. And, you know, too, like kind of the most predictable, most consistent. It's always been weird to me how like how de-emphasized it has to be in fantasy. Um, so, yeah, I do like anything uh, that uh, tilts people towards doing a 2QB or Superflex, with the caveat that the league, unfortunately, has to be smaller. Yeah, if you want to if you want a quarterback to matter, then you have to make it, you know, two QBs or, or Superflex. I, I will say that I don't know if, if that would be great for the, the the more casual fantasy manager. And and Pat was hinting at that with the difference between 10 and 12 teams. 
but it's the only way to make the position really matter. Just like tight end premium is the, is the only way to, not the only way, but it is a way to ensure that fantasy managers take tight end seriously. Denny, are we any closer to your dream of wide receiver only fantasy leagues? We're drifting further and further away from the utopia, from the wide receiver utopia. And, and you know, with a league that emphasizes passing, that has so many explosive pass catchers, my faith in the position and in zero RB has been shaken. I will get it back by the beginning of next season and I will continue my trutherism. But for now, I, I can see it drifting further away. Have we reached the death of the late round QB topic? Are we ready to move on? Yeah, that's that's something. So you're, you'll notice, though, also, that's something Josh did, uh, especially on a Pat Denny show. He'll force them to move on. Otherwise, we will be here all day. Uh-huh. Pat, hit us with your hit us with your first lesson from the 2020 season. Try to remember if I learned anything this year. I, I claimed that I did. I told you that I had a few things that I learned. But uh, um, yes, the first lesson I think that I was going to talk about it. I got burned really bad. I mean, I think a lot of people got burned by this, especially with Justin Herbert, but this isn't necessarily fantasy, but when it comes to player evaluation, so I'm not like, uh, that's not like my specialty. I'm not like a scout. I'm not like Dane Brugler or even Josh Norris. I'm like a good college scout or anything. But like when I was like assessing Justin Herbert and Justin Jefferson coming into like the NFL and like the fantasy land, uh, I, I made them, I focused too much on like their college roles, like when assessing the player. So I thought, when I watched Justin Jefferson at LSU, so I watched, you know, a ton of LSU last year. I watched some cut-ups of Justin Jefferson before the draft. I'm like, this dude has always, like, got someone, like, right on him. He never has that much separation. He's always operating in tight quarters. And to me, I just decided Justin Jefferson wasn't a great separator. But, you know, I knew he was the slot receiver for LSU. But I'm like, I, don't, I think this dude might have some kind of Nikhil Harry where he's just not a great separator. And no, I just wasn't focusing on the fact that, well, yeah, no, duh. He's being used as the slot receiver in the middle of the field and that he's being used there because he can win. He can create separation even in those tiny areas. Like I didn't focus on the fact that, oh, maybe, you know, Justin Jefferson will be allowed to operate uh, in areas where he'll have more space in the NFL. So I just basically totally botched my Justin Jefferson evaluation. And same thing with Justin Herbert. Like I knew Justin Herbert had a huge arm. Like that was one of his like kind of defining characteristics but I just thought he was like a hopelessly conservative quarterback because of the way he was used in Oregon. You know, so many screens, so many checkdowns, so many running back targets. I'm like, this dude is just too conservative. And no, it just turns out as Oregon's offense and how he was being used. And so just two players that I got kind of taken by surprise by kind of for no reason. Like if I had been a more sophisticated evaluator, maybe I would have realized those things. Just a reminder that uh, just because the, a guy is used a certain way in college does not mean he cannot have success in different ways in the NFL. On Jefferson, remember, we followed tea leaves throughout the preseason in camp to pick up player notes. And remember, he was working as their fourth receiver. Like, he never once cracked the first string offense, according to beat reporters, in camp. And thus his ADP plummeted. And also, the first two games played behind Olobisi Johnson was a non-factor. And then they finally slid him into two wide sets, playing as a boundary receiver, in week three across from Adam Thielen, and we see what happened. A rookie season record uh, is suddenly lost forever. I will say, though, Justin Herbert's the poster child for this because I think it's more important to forget your priors on quarterbacks. Uh, Herbert, of course, we 
we found out after knocking him for not going deep, making too many errant, dumb throws, and just not taking chances at all. It was apparently just the play caller in college he was dealing with at Oregon, and he came out, lit the world on fire immediately as one of the best deep ball throwers, and just a guy who wasn't scared to take chances either, whether it was Keenan Allen or Jalen Guyton trying to catch the pass downfield. Uh, we've seen the past two games throwing to Donald Parham of all players. Just doesn't care about your status, only cares if you're open or not. So I think with quarterback in particular, especially because we need to continue adjusting since the league is getting softer. The league is becoming more friendly for offenses and quarterbacks in particular than, yes, these these rookies coming out, these guys, uh, we don't need to worry about how we evaluate them so much. Are they athletes? Will they throw the ball? Yes. Okay, good enough. I'll take my chances on them. I'll try to ignore the Donald Parham slander for a moment. <laughs> uh, the Chargers' best tight end. And, uh, and say, yeah, I mean – you know, the Justin Herbert thing is a great lesson to be learned this year because everything that I read uh, with, you know, him coming into the league this year was that, you know, he's like Alex Smith. I remember that there was a, a comp, not arm strength, but the way he he would dump it off, he would look for the safe throws uh, in college. Uh, and I thought, wow, like what a waste, what a waste of a guy who supposedly has a very lively, strong arm, you know, thinking that the Chargers would use him that way. I wasn't super excited about him and it just it didn't take long it took one maybe two games to realize oh okay like they're gonna let him do his thing they're gonna let him use these skills so yeah definitely a huge lesson for rookie quarterbacks coming into the nfl all right we're gonna talk more about rookies in a few minutes here but denny why don't you hit us with your first lesson that you took away yeah so every year we believe that tight end is deep and myself included you know i'm i'm, I'm guilty and we say, well, this is this is the year. You don't understand. This is the year that we're going to find the tight end one in round six, round eight, round ten. And it, it didn't happen this year, and it basically never happens. I mean, Julius Thomas is the one like really a big exception I can think of, and that was. Uh, and I, I'm showing my age here. You know, that was uh, in the 1970s. So Hayden's um, never heard of Julius Thomas. So no, no. <laughs> we're talking about. He listens back to the podcast. That's right. That's right. I'll, I'll send him a, the Wikipedia page. Uh, <laughs> he so, doesn't know Wikipedia is either, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you're right. I'm so old. Yeah. So, so you're not you're not going to find it. And and so, if you really really want that huge advantage, that Kelsey Waller advantage at tight end, uh, you're going to have to pay up pay all the way up and you're not going to be able to like cheat the system and think that TJ Hawkinson is going to do it, you know, like for example, and you know, in, in one tight end leagues in traditional one tight end leagues, the position still shouldn't matter all that much. Okay. Like, like the, these onesie positions are difficult to really emphasize when you have, you know, three wide receiver spots to fill a flex to fill, whatever. So I'm not saying that Kelsey and Waller are must drafts in the first or second round, you know, in those formats. But I am saying that this idea that one year we're going to have a very deep tight end pool is just, just not happening. I agree. It happened in bundles this year where 
everyone beyond tight end five was bad. Like the, the offseason pieces already write themselves. Someone trying to sell you on TJ Hawkinson, for instance. But even he wasn't special. He was just a product of a very bad position. And he got there on 40 to 60 yards every single game. That's not good. That's awful. It was just a matter of everyone else around him was even worse. And I don't even know if I'd consider prioritizing Darren Waller. Like Travis Kelsey will rightfully be discussed as a top five option just to get that position out of the way in upcoming drafts. And although I think that's too much inflation and I'll probably have to pass on him and instead go to someone like Kittle, who still averaged the third most fantasy points per game, despite only playing eight games and look is looking like someone who we can bank on positive regression in 2021. It's just the fact that, yeah, those guys and then perhaps Waller, that's where it ends. Cause like even Mark Andrews averaged eight fewer fantasy points per game, eight than Kelsey. Like the drop off was immense. Kelsey had 35 more points than Waller and over 100 more than Tanya and Hawkinson and Andrews, to your point there, Daigle. <laughs> and Tanya, and, Tanya basically lived on touchdowns. There, there were so many weeks where, you know, you get the on Twitter and social media, the sit and start questions pumped to you. And at some points, no one wanted to start Tanya. No one wanted to start Hawkinson because, again, these guys were practically living on touchdowns. Like Jasicki, once Jasicki stopped living off touchdowns, you saw that was an absolute disaster. You guys are offending the Tunyon families, by the way. You have to do his abhorrent pronunciation right. of his last Forget. name. And it is Tunyon, not Tanyan. It is as horrible as it makes us feel to say it. So if you, I mean, Travis Kelsey, was that the biggest positional advantage in fantasy history this year? Like, has there ever been that big of a gall? Like, so it was huge between him and Waller. But like Matt said, uh, it was like just enormous between that and number three. Like, basically, might as well have been two different positions. And Denny is right that this happens like every year. And I think it must just be a product of like how lightly targeted the position still is. And like, there are always going to be guys from that second tier who break through. But so the guy who did this year, Robert Tunyon, like John's, he was getting like four or five targets a game and it was all touchdowns. And the position's always going to be every position. When you go down like one to 20, there's going to be upside sprinkled throughout, but it's just so much harder tied in than the other positions to truly hit just because the volume is so limited. And I'm sure in May and June, I'll be saying, yeah, this is the year tight end is actually deep again, folks. Uh, but Danny's <laughs> right. So it's never been. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's volume, right? I mean, it's so rare to find a tight end that commands that type of basically wide receiver one volume like Waller did and, and Kelsey, obviously. So nobody else is going to command that. Like myself for a time in August, I remember thinking, well, Mark Andrews could do that. But the Ravens offense was never going to be pass heavy enough for that to work out long term and like consistently. And then there's a touchdown regression. Uh, So it it just it's very rare to come across a tight end like that that commands that sort of target share week in and week out. Get ready for Super Wildcard Weekend for the first time ever. Two days of triple headers. Super Wildcard Weekend kicks off this Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be one wild wildcard weekend. Learn more at nfl.com slash schedule. All right, one lesson that stood out to me, guys, is beware the skill player over the age of 30. Heading into week 17, so obviously the fantasy season that most of us use, there were only four non-quarterbacks over the age of 30 in the top 100 of half-point PPR scoring. So just four players over the age of 30. That would be the aforementioned Travis Kelsey, Adam Thielen, Cole Beasley and Marvin Jones Jr. And that's it. And Beasley and Marvin Jones Jr. Obviously only are really guys who randomly had their moments. So you're really talking about Kelsey and Thielen as like every week fantasy starters over the age of 30 who aren't quarterbacks. 
Yeah, Beasley wasn't even random. Um, finished as a top 25 receiver, but that's because he averaged that many fantasy points. I think it was a 8 to 10 point difference without John Brown, who was out of the way most of the year. So like next year, that's one of the easiest players to ignore. Um, having said that, yeah, I think it also comes down to certain situations players land in. But a lot of those players are being moved this offseason. Marvin Jones, like pretty much told media Sunday morning. He's like, no, I'm, I'm excited about testing free agency. We don't need to be here that much longer. It's okay. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where they shake up at. But correct, um, there are not a lot beyond that age, in my opinion, that you're looking to to grab. Matt just became Adam Levitan's favorite fantasy analyst. Uh, Adam has been most famous ageist in the industry for quite a long time. And, you know, we're over 30 now, Adam. Uh, why don't you come say it to my face? Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, someone who I thought I was getting a big bargain on Julio Jones in my home league uh, didn't work out. I mean, so there's still always going to be values there. But yeah, like I think John made a critical point there, I mean, especially when evaluating older players. I mean, the context is this extra important. And it needs to be like a Julio Jones type talent. You need to bet on special talents over the age of 30. It worked with Antonio Brown for like a year or two. It'll work with people like Julio Jones. It sort of worked with AJ Green for like a year. But yeah, even those, all those guys I just mentioned, even they all fell off after 30. So I, if you're going to be betting on players over 30, they better be a pretty darn special talent. I, I guess like Travis Kelsey. I uh, never got a response from Julio when I offered my hamstrings to him this season. <laughs> um, he didn't write back. So, Not but great. yeah, I mean, I think I think Julio is a is a great example. I think the key with this lesson maybe you know don't cross off guys who meet this criteria you know who are over a certain age don't don't say i'm absolutely never drafting them but you know maybe drafting them at adp or before adp is something to be avoided you know and and we we could see those type of players you know i I could imagine this thought process catching on in fantasy to an extent it kind of depends on what kind of league you're in savvy or or kind of uh casual but uh you could see those players drop to a point where they're more interesting let's say and it goes the other way too. Like, you know, it looks easy looking now. You look at J.K. Dobbins' five touchdown streak. You look at Jonathan Taylor being an MVP down the stretch. But remember, literally for 10 or 11 weeks, you couldn't start those guys. Like Jonathan Taylor, everyone wanted to drop. They were only looking at his last five games saying, hey, look at this schedule. Despite how bad he's been, maybe it just clicks. And it did. J.K. Dobbins, it took them healthy scratching marking in the last three weeks for Dobbins to make any noise. And by that time, everyone who drafted him was probably out of the playoffs. So it goes the other way, too, where these infinite ceilings we can't see because we hadn't seen the players in the league just yet. uh, They become too high. And so you could end up chasing them and be wrong as well. Denny hit at the heart of the matter, I think, where with just older players, maybe like be extra focused on just only drafting them as values. There's no need to like go around early with an older player. Yeah, just focus on them kind of more as like value picks. Well, as I was looking at this, I was thinking, well, maybe there aren't that many players this excludes, right? But then you look, you mentioned Julio, you got Mark Ingram, T.Y. Hilton, Julian Edelman, Emmanuel Sanders, Golden Tate, Zach Ertz. David Johnson is 29. I think we can all round up to 30 or beyond in that case. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a bunch of prominent names who were all more or less disappointments this year. I, I will say Julio is going to be an interesting case study because when he was on the field, he was dominant. The fact is, though, he was not on the field. And again, these injuries are beginning to stack up the past few years. They probably mismanaged. I mean, they mismanaged that one. Badly. Everyone. They mismanaged every single player on that team. 
Yeah. Julio's just so fascinating too because he's like to me Julio Jones is like one of the greatest athletes in American history not in terms of like necessarily athletic accomplishment but it's like pure athlete he's a freak like a special so he could be one of the guys who, who breaks like, the models we we saw you know it's Monday morning it's technically the offseason I'm not doing this type of research yet but we saw that Julio Jones when he was on the field made Russell Gage Brandon Powell like these guys better whereas Calvin Ridley was amazing but he didn't make anyone better he didn't open up the offense he himself just continued staying afloat because Julio demands that type of attention well, Daigle, you started to hit at, I think, what was a lesson you wanted to bring to the table here when you started to talk about Jonathan Taylor and J.K. Dobbins. So why don't you uh, bring us that one as well? This is one that is more forward thinking than the others we've discussed, if only because it's about to happen. It's right around the corner in March. Uh, I typically put out my best ball tiers March 1 um, after I've already have the available air yards and targets trackers and available carries trackers out. And something that I recall the last two years, last year specifically, because a lot of surprises happened in the draft and something we need to take into account, especially if you're playing offseason best ball, is that remember to draft rookies prior to the NFL draft if you're playing best ball because we don't know what's going to happen. And their draft capital decides everything. Of course, the the main sample, the relevant option is Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who was being drafted as the RB34 overall until the first night. And then, of course, the next month was the RB14 overall. And remember, that was before Damian Williams opted out. Just Clyde Edwards-Hilaire's surprising first-round capital is what pushed him into the first round, whereas you could get him in the fifth or sixth round prior to that. Of course, we have uh, Justin Jefferson as well, wide receiver 60, then being drafted as wide receiver 47 the month after the draft. Uh, and you can go on and on. Jalen Rager, Brandon Ayuk, who was practically going undrafted despite being discussed in NFL circles. And then not only the capital, but just the team being in a great situation. But given his skill set, we knew Kyle Shanahan would scheme him closer to the line of scrimmage and allow him to make plays after the catch. Uh, it turns out he was good at everything, but that's also a byproduct of being drafted highly in a terrific offense and then of course uh cam Akers as well who again we weren't discussing thought he'd end up as a backup we thought eno benjamin was going to be cam Akers, and it turned out eno ended up going like as nearly mr irrelevant whereas Akers was valued much higher than we thought so i just want to remember that you got to take these shots over the next few months in best ball leagues because it can easily wipe out five to six rounds of value and you know we don't have to discuss hindsight again taylor dobbins these guys i understand they weren't startable for a long period of time but the fact is if you got value on them that's what matters the process of course yeah, I don't have much to add to really you laid it out perfectly, but you can get some bombs with that approach, obviously, like you alluded to it, you know, Benjamin, but Keyshawn Vaughn was the yeah, bomb. But that is the way, yeah. I mean, that's I talk about an easy way to win leagues is just like hitting on the, the right rookies uh, before the draft. It's like the biggest like life hack imaginable in the best ball format. So uh yeah, that's uh, all I have to add. Yes, the process, the process, the process, John. I agree with that. And and you know, people will say on Twitter. Uh, in March and April, why are you drafting best ball teams right now? Like, what? Well, like, this I'm makes no sense. Person. Besides, you know, being a, a degenerate, you know, it, it it makes sense if you can spot these guys who are going to make a huge leap in best ball drafts once they are drafted. If you can identify, not, you know, you don't have to be perfect, but I think, you know, identifying one or two of those guys in each of your best ball drafts, the early, early ones, it could make a huge difference down the stretch. When we were brainstorming this show offline, Daigle, you wrote just one line, draft rookies early. It's funny. I thought for a second you were just basically going to be pointing out 
just how much value there ended up being in this rookie class. I mean, Herbert, Taylor, Jefferson, James Robinson, Gibson, Lamb, you know, so many Dobbins, so many guys, Ayuk, so many impact players, just period as rookies, where I think a lot of those guys would have been values in drafts regardless. Uh, one, you'll notice that I elaborate my thoughts on podcasts. When it comes to email, I'm very lazy. It's I just it's quick one-liners and I get out of my email, but I bring the notes to the podcast. But two, uh, that is that is a good point. But also, in that case, it depends on their situations. Uh, having said that, yes, the point is still to pound the table for rookies, uh, especially just talented guys like Edwards Hilaire, we probably should have seen coming, if only because his one skill set oddly was one he didn't even get to use in the league was uh, his pass catching chops. And those are the types of running backs we're trying to target. Same as Antonio Gibson, who ended up in a great situation where there was no one who's going to steal from his touches. Little did we know JD McKissick would be involved heavily, but even Antonio Gibson, again, the one skill set was being used at wide receiver basically throughout his career at Memphis. So targeting guys like that, even in the middle rounds, whatever the case, just trying to get value on them because it takes two nights, 48 hours later, suddenly you got four rounds worth of value. Talk about Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, I did see it coming. Uh, one of the things I did see coming this year, which brings me to my lesson, though, of something I didn't see coming at all, uh, was Josh Allen. And uh, discounting the possibility of, like, the big leap. And, you know, we're, like, obsessed with, like, linear progressions for players. They get a little bit better this year. They get a little bit better this year. And it's like Josh Allen, like, I knew I could be wrong. Like, someone with that like wild of a skill set, you know, it's like so much raw potential still. Uh, but I did not think I would be wrong in the fashion I was where Josh Allen became basically a 70% passer without sacrificing his big playability. And I just totally did not entertain the possibility of like a special talent, just like putting it all together and taking this massive leap and becoming an MVP contender. I focused so much on the flaws. I focused on his decision-making and his accuracy and I just totally discounted the possibility, yeah, of a person who we knew had the, like the raw physical skills of a person who seemed to be a pretty smart and a football player too. And I just didn't entertain the possibility that he would put it all together and take. And lots of other smart people did. Remembering that not everything is linear. That like if you can identify a player that you think is special, like many people did with Josh Allen, that you can take that hugely, even if you've already been in the league two or three years. It just takes a couple of years sometimes, and. Yeah, just not uh, not being afraid to make the big bet, basically, on someone taking like a huge, huge nonlinear step forward. I think that that also kind of ties into not assuming that an offense is going to stay stagnant or stay the same. I know that I was very skeptical about the Bills offense, you know, being more aggressive, like more pass heavy this year. And I was completely wrong. And, you know, although I, I did have Josh Allen exposure, I didn't have a whole lot of Stefan Diggs exposure. And that was a, a mistake in hindsight. So assuming that offenses along with players can't take that next step, you know, is something to be careful uh, going forward. Now, I, I will say that having a preseason often helps with that. Uh, we get to see, you know, what, what's happening on the field before it actually starts. But it remains a, a lesson we should keep in mind for 2021. That's what people don't realize is that 
Well, maybe I'm uh, too positive right now, but I imagine this was a one-year thing. Like this monster that was the 2020 season, recall how different it was every single year prior. Uh, Saturday news was pertinent this year, whereas in the past, you could work it from the golf course. I can, I can talk from experience. So I would imagine that life is easier for all of us fantasy players as well. You don't have to worry about last-second lineup changes because someone got scratched the night before while you were trying to enjoy your personal life. So yeah, I just think we're in store for something completely different, but also it's important to take these lessons away. One more quick note on Josh Allen. I think there was a sort of a sense heading to the season of oh, so much of his value was tied up in the rushing production. You know, that almost weirdly scared you away. Like it didn't feel sustainable that he was going to get all those rushing touchdowns again, but it almost ended up being the case where that just boosts his floor. And then once everything else clicked into place, you know, he went to the next level. Does that make sense? Because I think people feared that like it would be a very easy thing to take away from Josh Allen because he didn't threaten enough as a passer. So it would be a part of my thing was, oh, those take away his rushing threat. Then I'll have like even less spiked week potential. But he made so much improvement as a passer that uh, his legs, uh, they couldn't focus as much on his legs as I was expecting. And so like this, it all worked in tandem to make him like an MVP candidate, basically. He was a hot button topic on this pod throughout the offseason. And uh, Josh Hayden and I were... Uh, vehement as a top five option i didn't care about his passing honestly i just wanted the legs and the fact he leaped that much a leap that even i didn't expect even though we should all be wiser now and uh probably take long shot mvp odds moving forward on guys who can do both even though aaron Rodgers, of course is the exception this year since he was amazing but but yeah uh he made a leap that i did not expect and even then we just want the legs we want the rushing floor and just everyone was against me on josh allen they were right I was right about Clyde Edwards Hilaire. I'm putting it on my grave. All right. My <laughs> second lesson, I think maybe our final lesson is just David Montgomery, guy who was really not that intriguing in the draft, was scoring single digits more often than not the first 10 weeks of the season, then just completely took off. I've had to check this several times because I still can't believe it. Averaged 23.7 half PPR points from weeks 12 through 16. I think... There's a lesson in here somewhere, but I'm going to put it to you guys. Danny, any immediate thoughts on the David Montgomery phenomenon? Yeah, so I, I would say that it's all about volume. That's my first my first thought here. But you mentioned that he was hardly startable in 12-team leagues for eight or 10 weeks after Tariq Cohen went down. You know, And, and after Tariq Cohen went down, I remember the, the very next week, Dave Montgomery was like top three in pass routes run. And you were like, oh, okay, this is something that we should really take notice of. And Dave Montgomery is going to be like a mainstay in, in the Chicago passing game. Uh, not that that's like a huge deal, but, you know, it is it is for what we thought he was going to be used as in, in that offense. So, you know, weeks and weeks go by, nothing happens. Eventually, I think the volume, you know, it pays off. I don't know if Dave Montgomery is like a completely different player than he was in September and, or October, um, but a guy gets 25 and 30 touches a game. He got 31 touches yesterday against Green Bay. And good things are, you know, probably going to happen. And, you know, so I, I think when a running back is the only game in town and, and the team makes it very clear that he's going to be our early down guy, he's going to be our passing down guy, it's worth, obviously worth it to stick with that for as long as you can. The David Montgomery lesson is that uh, we are a speck of dust inside a galaxy that is another speck of dust in the 
What is the infinite vastness of the universe? No, at least David Montgomery can take advantage of a soft portion of the schedule. We've learned that about David Montgomery, which is the baseline for being a good player. You need to at least cash in good matchups. And we know that David Montgomery can do that now. Uh, whether or not he will remain a thing going forward, I mean, it's very much up for debate. I mean, him and James Robson are like the easiest players to fade this offseason. <laughs> I, I don't want anything about of them. Uh, David Montgomery, yes, did he average 24 touches a game over that last six-game stretch? Of course. But also, just the schedule. And I've, I've heard people much smarter than me talk about this and like try to over-explain the Bears offense getting better. It's like, no. They're still terrible. Like, do you not recognize this? It's literally the schedule and nothing more. Green Bay, Jacksonville, Houston, Minnesota, Tennessee. Like, of course he can run all over. He literally played only bottom five rushing defenses. Like, this is not hard. Do not overthink this. You don't want any part of David Montgomery next year. Yeah, I mean, at some point it did become clear that he had that schedule. I guess there's something to be said for forward thinking and and looking at all the green on the back end of someone's schedule, but it doesn't always feel like that comes together anyways like this. Well, I I think, yeah, and you're you're right about seeing the green, because I remember looking at his rest rest of season schedule around like week 10 or 12, and I thought, oh, man, like Montgomery is, you know, somebody to have. And I think when you can match that, rest of season schedule that solid rest of season schedule with volume when you can match this to and you can't do that very often with like mm-hmm. guaranteed volume then you have something now if you have one or the other it might not work depending on how good the player is but i think when you can put those together that's that's where you you make some money and it also really helped the past few games that Cordero patterson had been out of the way because every offensive touch for Cordero patterson's a win for the opposing defense <laughs> oh wow <laughs> Yeah, shots fired at Ian, by the way. Uh, yeah, poor Ian. Poor guy. Tough. All right, well, that's about going to do it for us. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We will be back on Thursday to preview all the games on Wild Card Weekend. Three games on Saturday, three on Sunday. There will be a lot to cover. Pat, Daigle, Danny, thanks for taking the time, guys. Does uh, someone want to say it? Are we going to say it? <laughs> no. So I, I just figured that you know, we'd go with whatever you want to say. These things typically work itself out with chemistry. Uh, I don't know. Do I do I want to visit something like Villa Arena that apparently doesn't exist? Apparently it's like Villa Stadium or something. I have no idea. Sure. But uh, none of us claim our love, so. Yeah, we were all very sad that Josh – basically the only good thing about Josh leaving was the end of Up the Villa. Oh, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I still support them. I still support their fans. We're going to leave it at that. We will see you on Thursday.